Good morning. Welcome to Weymouth, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you for, for joining us here for worship. My name is, is Chris. I'm the pastor here. We're really glad to see you all and uh, to be able to worship uh, together this morning. As we get started in worship, let's just take a few moments uh, just in, in silent prayer and reflection together. So please bow and pray with me. Isaiah declares, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. But Bill, Fred, receive to you. We lift up Connie Sanook and, and others who are, who are dealing with physical challenges and, and sickness. We pray that as they go through that, your light and your mind will, will shine forth into their lives. That shall help them to cling to you, to rest in Christ and, and the hope we have uh, that, we're remember, that we're reminded of again and again during this season. Please strengthen them with your grace and your peace. We also pray for those who are uh, lost in the darkness of, of painful circumstances, of challenges at work, of, of fear and, and anxiety, especially as we think of the, the state of the world or as we think of uh, hard things going around in our own communities and our own families. To those who are grieving, to those who are uh, doubting, to those who are struggling, Lord, we just pray that your light will shine into their lives this season that they'll look anew on the, the hope of Christ, the light of the world, who brings us into your mercy and your grace. Help us to cling to him alone, to worship you for how you have brought us this salvation, brought us this mercy in Christ our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, now this week I'm going to invite the, the kids to come on up. Uh, I'm going to you know, tell you to watch out for these uh, candles here, so don't, don't go past the steps. But any kids, fifth grade and below, we're going we're gonna to do uh, something pretty cool. We're going to do our last question in the catechism this week. So careful, careful, watch the candles. Whew. Make me nervous. <laughs> you almost got me. Okay, you can see me. All right, you guys, well, this is a big week, huh? We have spent over 52 weeks because we did some, some diversions and just other things. But uh, we are on our last question in the New City Catechism. We are on question number 52. We've gone through 51 questions. We are on the last one this week. So that's really exciting. Thank you guys for going through this with us over the last year and a half. That's awesome. Uh, and so when we, uh, we'll take a little break and we'll do some different things for Christmas over the next couple weeks. And then in the new year, we'll have something else that we'll do together here. But uh, today we're going to do our last question in the catechism, which is this, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? And the answer is that we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new heaven and the new earth, where we will be forever freed from all sin in a renewed, restored creation. So that's our question this week, but I have another question for you guys. Who can tell me what season are we in right now? What season of the year are we in right now? Yeah, fall. fall? Are we technically still in fall? No. Oh, well, I guess we're technically in fall. Uh, winter. Yeah, winter. I was going to say winter, but I guess technically it's not till December. Man, the calendar's weird, you guys. Um, so we're in fall, and what comes after fall? Right? Winter. winter, yeah, and winter is when we celebrate what holiday? Christmas, right? When, you know, and, yeah, some people celebrate Hanukkah. People celebrate other holidays in winter time when it gets cold and it gets snowy. And then what comes after winter? Spring. Yeah, yeah, spring. What happens in spring? Flowers. Flowers bloom, leaves grow back, things summer. come back to life. Yeah, and then you have summer. Now, my favorite season of the year, it changes sometimes, but a lot, most of the time my favorite season of the year is spring. I love spring. Now, winter's great. You have Christmas, you have snow, at least until New Year's Day, and then I'm done with snow. Snow can go away forever. Um, but what I love about spring is you have all these trees, you have all these uh, plants and things that have gone barren, that have 
uh, withered over the winter that have lost all their leaves, and then in springtime you see the leaves start to bud again. They come back to life. The flowers bloom. New life comes back. These trees, these plants, these flowers, they're all restored. When we talk about this word restoration, we're talking about how something that was barren, something that was empty, is made new. It's brought back to life. And the message of the Bible is that through Jesus, through God's Son, uh, God is working to restore all of creation. You know, early in the catechism, we learned about how God is our creator. He made everything. But then we also learned that because of our sin, uh, everything was corrupted. Everything was broken. Our relationship with God was broken. The world was, was broken. We have things like death and, and sickness and sadness and pain. But we've talked about how Christ came and through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension, uh, by rising again, uh, by paying the price for our sins, by coming to new life, he made a way for us to know God, for us to have a relationship with God. But what Jesus also did is he made a way for, for a new spring to come into the winter of the world, for new life to come, for a new restoration to come. And that starts now in part in the church and in people who believe in Jesus in our own hearts if we trust in him. But one day that will be fully fulfilled, fully realized. We will see the ultimate spring, the ultimate restoration of, of everything when Jesus comes back, when he makes a new heaven and a new earth. And so the hope of being a Christian isn't just that you can personally know God through faith in Jesus. It's that one day, if you trust Christ, we'll live in a perfect, restored world. We'll live in a perfect, eternal spring where everything is alive and perfect and restored. There's no death and, and sadness, sickness, or, or anything like that anymore. And so as Christians, we have a hope personally right now, but we also have a hope for the future. And when we celebrate Christmas, what we're doing is we're remembering that the start of that hope, that it began with Jesus coming into the world as a baby, coming into a world full of darkness and sin and destruction to, to die and rise again and so that he could restore, he could bring a new spring to that world. And so that's our ultimate hope, and that's where the catechism ends. It ends that with this hope that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, a new restoration, a new spring that will come. And so as Christians, if you believe in Jesus, we have more reason to hope, more reason to rejoice, more reason to praise God than anyone, no matter what we see in the world, no matter what we're facing in our lives. And that's really, really good news, and that's news we should tell more people about, especially in a time like Christmas. So, uh, so that's, that's the catechism. That's where it ends. It starts with creation. It ends with new creation. That's the storyline of the Bible. We'll get into some other things in the new year, but let me pray for us, and then you guys can go to, to Weymouth Kids here. Well, Father, thank you for uh, this catechism. Thank you for, for those uh, like Tim Keller and others who, who put it together for us and who use your word to, 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 to outline these things, this, this great storyline of how you are recreating and restoring your fallen creation in Christ. Lord, so help us to rejoice in this hope that we have, that a new spring will come, a new restoration will happen. There will be a new heavens and a new earth that we will live in with you for all eternity if we trust in Jesus. So help us to trust in him, to have faith in him for salvation, and to participate with him in this new uh, restoration that you are working in him. Lord, help us to rejoice in hope, even as we face the darkness and the challenges of this world. Help us to rejoice in this hope forever and share it with more people. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, you guys can go line up behind Mr. and Mrs. Pixton. They'll lead you out to, to Weymouth Kids here, and then the rest of us uh, will actually remain seated for a moment. Uh, because before we sing a few songs together, we have a special guest this morning. She's been here before. She's back by popular demand. It's, uh, <laughs> Lois is, is Carol Kinnebrew's mom. She's a gifted pianist. And so this morning, as we uh, think about Advent, as we think about the, the coming of Christ, we're going to spend a few moments just in, in prayerful reflection on, on the hope we have in Christ and his coming uh, as Lois plays for us on the piano. So Lois, take it away whenever you're ready, and then the rest of us will pray, we'll reflect, and then we'll sing a couple songs together.
Thank you, Lois. Let me, let me pray for us as the worship team comes up here. Well, God, we thank you for uh, just this reminder of, of the humility in which your son came into the world, uh, the, the humility and, and the mercy he came to bring to, to restore our broken creation, to bring us a new hope and a new life, a new relationship with you. So, Lord, help us as we continue to praise you, as we continue to worship. Lord, fill our hearts with this good news. Help us to praise you in, in fullness of joy because of the gift you've given us in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, please stand and we'll sing together. Rest ye merry, gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Comfort and joy, oh, tidings 
thank you that you sent your son Jesus to come here and live with us and live a perfect blameless life Lord Lord we thank you for for that truth and and the power in that truth Lord Lord I pray that we would look to the example of Christ every day in our lives Lord and I pray that um, we would look to um, your word here this morning and and all throughout um, all throughout this week Lord just thank you and praise you for for your name and, and your work pray out all this in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're seated, I invite you to turn to the book of Micah, Micah chapter 3. We are going through uh, the prophet Micah here this Christmas season and then into the new year. Uh, Micah is a great book and it's a great opportunity to see as we open our Bibles, as we read our Bibles, that uh, it's not just the New Testament which points us to Christ. It's not just the New Testament which gives us hope in this Christmas season. That as we look to the pages of the Old Testament to prophets like Micah and Isaiah, uh, we, can, we can see uh, the truth about the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness of the world, but also we can see the truth about uh, the light that Christ has come to bring into the world. In the Old Testament, we see uh, promises and, and pointers to this light. And we see that in the book of Micah as he, as he moves again and again from darkness to light. And, uh, and, and we'll see especially uh, this week and next week as we move from chapter 3 to chapter 4 and then into chapter 5, we'll see how this hope begins to take shape, how this promise goes forth. But as we get there, look with me this morning at uh, Micah chapter 3. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. And I said, Hear, you heads of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight who builds Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house 
a wooded height. Amen. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Well, gracious Father, we thank you for this word. And as we come to it now, give us ears to hear it, give us eyes to see it, give us hearts to understand it, and give us mouths to go and share it with others for your glory, for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you were to go to downtown Cleveland tomorrow and drive down Superior Avenue and go to the Cleveland Public Library and take the elevator up to the second floor, what you would find there is you would find a pretty uh, cool, pretty expansive uh, display uh, exhibit of Superman memorabilia, right? It's kind of funny, this is, I'm showing off my nerdy side this morning here, but uh, a lot of people don't know this, but Superman was actually invented in Cleveland. He's actually invented in Cleveland. He was invented by uh, two guys, Jerry Siegel and, and Joe Schuster, who met as uh, students at Glenville High School. And they met and, uh, and they wanted to get into newspaper comics, and so they created this character, Superman. They created this character who's, who's an alien from another planet who comes and fights for truth and justice. And I thought about this because if you go to that exhibit this week, what you'll find on the second floor of the Cleveland Public Library is you'll find the actual writing desk of, of Jerry Siegel, that he, he wrote some of the early Superman comics from. And what's interesting about those early Superman comics, if you ever look this up, if you ever read this, is, is in his early days, Superman, he didn't fight robots and, and aliens. The, the people that Superman was fighting in those early comics were corrupt politicians. They were mob bosses. Even in the very first issue, he goes and he actually ends a war in the very first issue of his comics. I don't know how you... You beat that, you top that for the next 90 years, but they've been trying to, right? It's interesting, and it's interesting to think about these two young guys, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. They were two, two Jewish young men from Cleveland writing in the 30s and 40s in a time where there was uh, great oppression and injustice building all over the world, especially in Europe. And so they created a hero, a superhero, who could stand against the injustices that were growing and getting stronger and becoming more and more apparent in the 30s and 40s. They created a superhero who could stand against this injustice and this story, this story of Superman's creation. It reminds us that whatever time we're living in, there is something in our hearts that cries out for justice, something in our hearts that cries out and longs for justice, especially when we are faced with the injustices of the world. <laughs> This is true for us, this was true for the creators of Superman, and it was also true for the prophet Micah. Because remember, Micah lived during a time of out-of-control idolatry and injustice in the kingdom of Judah. And Micah was chosen by God to announce both God's judgment against this evil, but also the coming salvation, the coming justice God was going to bring. And so in Micah chapter 1, we saw how through Micah, God declared his judgment against the idolatry of his people. And then in chapter 2, he declares his judgment against the injustice of his people. And now here in chapter 3, he turns his attention to the injustice of Judah's leaders. We have God's judgment against idolatry, against injustice, and now against the leaders of Judah. In this chapter, Micah, he declares that the injustice of earthly rulers will meet the justice of our heavenly ruler. The injustice of earthly rulers will meet the justice of our heavenly rulers. And specifically in this chapter, Micah, he makes the case for God's justice against unjust judges in verses 1 to 4, against unjust prophets in verses 5 to 8, and then generally against all unjust rulers in verses 9 to 12. So he has three stanzas of justice here. First, justice against unjust judges in verses 1 to 4. We see in verse 1, Micah, he cries out, he says, Hear, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. He calls out the heads. When he uses this, word's head, this word heads here, he's referring to the judicial heads of Judah. He's referring to the, the judges, the legal heads that presided over the people. And Micah, he denounces these judges. He says to them, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil. These judges had become corrupt. Instead of uh, loving good, they hated it and loved evil instead. 
Now, many of us, many people are, are fascinated uh, by mob stories, by gangster movies. Right? The, the Godfather is often referred to as one of the, the greatest movies of all time. Now, actually, I've never seen The Godfather, so I don't know what that says about my movie experience or my lack of cultural literacy or whatever, but uh, it's interesting how much we uh, enjoy these stories about corrupt leaders, about politicians, about uh, gangsters who come in and bring injustice in these communities. These, these movies, these stories are, are exciting. They're sometimes fun to watch. But if we lived in this reality, if, we, if you really experience a world like some people have, where the people who are supposed to rule and lead are corrupt, where the people who are supposed to uphold good instead love evil, if you actually live in that reality, it is far from exciting or entertaining. It is horrific and heartbreaking. Look at the, the language that Micah uses here. This is great language for the two weeks before Christmas here. Micah, he, he describes what these judges do. He, and he uses brutal language here. He says they flay the skin off of God's people. He says they break their bones and chop up their flesh and eat it like meat in a pot. There you go, Merry Christmas, right? Here we go. He's, he's describing these judges as brutal cannibals, as leaders who are destroying and desecrating the flesh of God's people. And what this imagery is pointing to is what Micah is doing here is he's prophetically declaring how these judges have taken so much from these people. They have used their power to so utterly devastate God's people to take from them their land, their riches, their security, their inheritance, to unjustly steal from God's people so completely that it's as if they are ripping and eating the very flesh from their bones. That's the kind of devastation, the kind of destruction this injustice is bringing. And so God brings his word of judgment against these judges. He declares that a day is coming when these unjust judges will cry out to the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will not answer them. He will hide his face from them in judgment. Just as these judges ignored the cries of those they were taking from, those they were oppressing and destroying, so too will God ignore their cries when he brings his judgment against them, when he brings exile against them. Just as they have destroyed others in their judgment, God is going to destroy them in his judgment. And so Micah declares to these unjust earthly judges who, who love evil and who hate good, he declares to them that there is a greater judge. There is a heavenly judge who perfectly loves good and hates evil. And he is going to bring his just judgment against their brutality, against their injustice. And this is important news for us today because we too live in a world where those who are supposed to know justice so often embrace injustice, where rulers and leaders who are meant to use their authority to protect the good instead use it to promote evil. Micah here, he focuses on the judges in Judah, but I'm sure all of us today could come up with our own list our own list of uh, different political or social or even religious leaders who were trusted with authority to do good, but instead use, the, use their power for injustice and oppression. But even as we think of that, we also need to be honest with ourselves. We need to be honest and reflective about the reality in our own hearts. Because if we're honest about who we really are, about the thoughts we really harbor in secret, about the things we really feel in private, then we'll admit that when we have our own opportunities to rule, when we are given authority of some kind, whether that is the authority of a parent or a teacher or a boss or an older sibling or a coach or a counselor or whatever, it is really tempting to, to use that authority in selfish ways, to misuse the power, the privilege that God has given us to take from others rather than to help others flourish, to use our power, to use our authority to unjustly take things from others, grasp things from others, to take things like power or security or affirmation or identity at the expense of other people, to take from others, to use this authority in ways that are destructive and unjust. Because none of us are safe from the temptation 
to hate good and love evil. According to the teaching of Scripture, this is the natural condition of the human heart, that we were created to know God, the ultimate good, but instead we exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so we love evil and we hate good. This is our natural bent. Naturally, we are all curved inward towards ourselves in pride and selfishness. We're curved inward in ways that destroy and abuse and oppress others. And so we need to know that there is a greater judge. We need to know that we are not the ultimate authority over our own lives. That we don't get to decide what's good and evil for ourselves. That there is an ultimate ruler, an ultimate authority, a perfect judge, and he cares deeply, he cares infinitely about how we use the privilege, how we use the power, the opportunities, the authority that he gives us. He will meet earthly injustice with heavenly justice. And we need to know that. We need to know that. And so this justice here that Micah talks about, it doesn't just extend to unjust judges. It also goes on to extend to unjust prophets, to those who claim to speak for God, but in reality they speak corruption. And this is our our second point, the second stanza this morning of justice against unjust prophets. Because in verse 5, Micah, he turns his attention to fellow prophets in Judah. Now, a prophet was someone who was called by God, who was given God's word to speak God's word to God's people. But Micah is saying that these prophets who were called to speak God's word, to be his mouthpiece to his people, instead, they have corrupted the truth. Instead, they are leading God's people astray. These prophets were like a faulty GPS system. You know, we place a lot of faith in in these apps on our phones, whether it's Google Maps or or Waze or or Yahoo Maps, you insane people who use that. Um, Remember MapQuest? Anybody remember MapQuest? That was a good one. I miss MapQuest. Um, Right? We, we, we place a lot of faith in these things as we're driving around. When I first moved to Medina, and still a lot of the time, I'm putting in Google Maps on my phone to figure out how to get places because this was a new area for me. And a lot of times we rely so much on these things that we actually never learn how to get around. We've trusted in these guides on our phones. Now imagine if one day someone hacked into Google Maps and corrupted all the satellites or all the directions or however that works, uh, and we didn't know it. And so we who've trusted in these maps, we who've trusted in these directions, we would follow the directions the app gives us without realizing it was actually leading us astray, without realizing it was actually leading us in the opposite direction we wanted to go. If that happened, the, the, resas- the results could be disastrous. It could be disastrous for us. In the same way, these prophets who had been trusted by God's people to provide spiritual direction Instead, they had become corrupt. And they were leading God's people in the wrong direction. They were leading them astray. Instead of leading them back to the heart of God, they were leading God's people away from the truth of God to disastrous results. Look at what Micah says. He says, these corrupt prophets would cry peace when they had something to eat. They would provide uh, prophecies of hope and peace to the rich who could pay them. But to the poor, to to those who couldn't afford to pay, these prophets declared war. They declared messages of destruction against the poor and the needy who couldn't afford to pay for good messages. These prophets were distorting the truth for a price. They were prophets for profit. They were distorting, manipulating the word of God to get for themselves. To the rich, they would preach comfort and peace. They would tell them what they wanted to hear. But to those, to the poor, to the needy, to those who needed a word of hope from the Lord, they preached destruction, they preached war, because their goal was not to preach God's truth. Their goal was to get more people to pay them for good prophecies. They were utterly corrupt. They were taking the word of God and manipulating it and twisting it and using it for their own gain. And this is a reminder to us that we always have to be careful We always have to be on guard anytime someone claims to preach the word of God. Anytime someone comes and claims to speak for God, we must always compare what that person is saying back to the Bible, back to the word of God. We must always be on guard against anyone who steps into the pulpit 
merely to tell us what we want to hear or to distort the truth of God in order to manipulate others into giving themselves wealth and status. We see this so often. It's so easy to fall into this. There are false teachers in our day who do this all the time, who distort the word of God, who manipulate people, who manipulate God's people with false truths for their own benefit. So we need to be on guard against this. We need to watch out for anyone who walks into, into a pulpit, anyone who comes into this pulpit. We must always be careful to see, is what they are saying actually in Scripture? Are they just telling me what I want to hear? Are they uh, structuring their messages to get a good response, to get more money, to get more riches, to get more acclaim or status? We must always be careful. We must always take the Bible as our final authority, not some pastor or preacher or prophet who claims to speak the word of God. Because no mere human being is our ultimate authority. The word of God is our authority because in the word of God, Christ is revealed to us. God reveals his word to us. And that is our final authority, not uh, human beings, not corrupt prophets who distort the word for their own profit. This is what the prophets were doing in Micah's day, and so God promises to take away their very ability to be prophets. He promises that he will bring night to them, that they will have no vision, that their days will be black over them. And here he is promising to take away their prophetic gifts, to take away their ability to to have visions or to remove their ability to speak for God. This is the judgment for their idolatry, for their corruption, for their injustice. And then in verse 8, Micah does something interesting. He contrasts the silencing, the disgrace of these false prophets with the boldness, with the power of his true prophetic mission. He declares in verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. You see, in contrast to these unjust prophets, Micah is a true prophet, and he had been filled with the Spirit of the Lord with justice and might, not just to to tell people what they wanted to hear, but to boldly proclaim the truth of God's judgment, of God's justice against the sin of his people. In this declaration here in verse 8, this is, this is Micah's purpose statement for the whole book. This is what he's come to do. He is a prophet filled with God's Spirit who has come to declare the truth of God's judgment against sin. In Micah's purpose statement here, it sounds a lot like the purpose statement of another prophet who would come later. The purpose statement of another prophet who would come from the town of Nazareth, who would return to his hometown in Luke 4. And when he was there, who went to a synagogue and was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, one of Micah's contemporaries, Isaiah's words to declare his own why he came. And he says this in Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after saying these words, Jesus Christ, the ultimate Micah, the ultimate prophet, he said these words in a synagogue in Nazareth, and then he sat down, he rolled up the scroll, and he said to the congregation, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, like Micah, Jesus was a prophet who was filled with the Holy Spirit to declare God's word to God's people. But the word that Jesus had come to declare, the message he had come to proclaim, was not the bad news of God's judgment, but the good news of God's liberation. While these false prophets in Micah declared war against the poor, Jesus came to declare good news to the poor. He came to proclaim freedom, to proclaim liberty for those who have been held captive by sin and injustice. He came to proclaim recovery of sight to those who have been blinded by their own pride and corruption. Jesus came to free the oppressed, to release the bonds of those who are held in bondage under the weight of sin and injustice. He he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, 
And this final line here that Jesus says in Luke 4, that he's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, this, this line refers to the important book of Leviticus. It refers to something that was called the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. This was a law in the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus that every 50 years in Israel, uh, all debts in the nation would be forgiven. All debts would be forgiven. All slaves would be freed. All land would be returned to its rightful owners. Every year, this, every 50 years, this year of Jubilee would come around and it was a time of redemption. It was a time of re- restoration. A time when oppression and injustice would be undone. When those in poverty and slavery, they could have their debts erased and their livelihood restored. In this year of Jubilee in Scripture, it shows us that God's justice, His justice, it includes not just retribution, it also includes restoration. It includes a making of the right what has gone wrong. See, Micah, he was a prophet who preached God's justice. He preached God's retribution against the injustice of his people. But Jesus was a greater prophet who came to also preach God's justice, who came to preach the restoration of God's people. And Christ was able to declare in Luke 4 not merely that God was going to do this, that he was going to bring this restoration. He was able to declare in Luke 4 that this restoration had arrived, that this promise was being fulfilled in his coming because Jesus was born in a manger, because he was standing in a synagogue in Nazareth, because he was God in human flesh. This restoration had arrived. And this is because Jesus, he's not just another one of the prophets. He's not just another man who spoke for God. He is the ultimate prophet. He's the son of God himself who's come to reveal God to us. As the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen to that last line again. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the author of Hebrews is saying Christ is not just the ultimate prophet who's come to proclaim God's truth to us. Jesus is also the ultimate ruler who has the power not only to promise restoration, but to carry it out to bring about this restoration. And so in Christ, then, we see fully how God's justice is able to meet the injustice of the earth. And this is our final point this morning of how uh, God promises to bring justice against unjust rulers. In the final stanza here, Micah, he expands his condemnation to all the rulers in Judah, to those who detest Justice to those who make crooked all that is straight. He describes how these rulers have built Jerusalem with blood and iniquity, how they have raised the city of God by destroying the people of God. And in verse 11, Micah, he gets specific about who these leaders are and what his charge is against them. He charges the judges of Judah with giving, with giving judgment for a bribe. He charges the, prophet, the priests of Judah with teaching for a price. He charges the prophets of Judah with practicing divination for money. These leaders have all corrupted their offices. They're using their authority in selfish, manipulative, prideful ways. And yet they claim to lean on the Lord. They claim that God is in their midst, that God will not bring destruction against them. And so they have no word of justice, uh, of God's justice against the sin and oppression of his people. They hide the truth of God's judgment against sin, and so they take advantage of God's people. And so God promises that their city will be plowed like a field, that Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, that the the temple will be removed from its mountain, and it will be replaced with a wild forest. See, God is promising the utter destruction even of the temple because of the sins of his people. That is how seriously he takes their corruption and their injustice. But then we must ask the question, if that is true, if God is promising this kind of destruction, 
How could Jesus then come and promise God's restoration in Luke 4? How could he do both? Well, the answer to this question comes when we see how the Bible builds on itself, how the storyline, the history of the Bible keeps going, because if you keep reading the Old Testament, what we'll discover is that Micah 3, verse 12, it's actually cited later in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet who came about 100 years or so after the prophet Micah. And like Micah, Jeremiah, he promised the judgment of God against the sins of his people. Specifically, Jeremiah promised that God was going to bring in the Babylonians to exile his people. And in Jeremiah 26, the priests and the prophets and the ruling officials of Judah, uh, they don't like the message they're hearing from Jeremiah. His, his words are not tickling their ears. He is proclaiming God's judgment against them. And so they want to put Jeremiah to death. They want to kill him. But then certain, el certain elders from Judah arise and they speak to the assembly in verse 18 and they say, Micah of Morsheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins in the mountain of the house of wooded height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? Did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? Did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. And so see this scene here. You have a group of rulers in Judah who are about to condemn the prophet Jeremiah to death. And then you have some elders, some men with wisdom, who, who rise up and say, hey, wait a minute. We've been here before. Back in Micah's day, Micah preached judgment. He preached that God was going to destroy us for our sins. But we didn't kill him. Actually, King Hezekiah, the king of Judah at that time, he actually heard Micah's prophecy. And he, he led Judah, he led God's people into reform, into repentance. Hezekiah, he tore down the idols of his father Ahaz. He turned the heart of the people back to God. Hezekiah, according to Scripture, he heard Micah's preaching. He heard Micah's prophecy of God's judgment against the leaders of Israel. And it changed him. It led him to repent. It led him to make reforms in Judah. And according to the book of Jeremiah, because he did that, because Judah repented and reformed under Hezekiah, then God relented of the disaster that he had promised through Micah. To the point that a hundred years later, Jerusalem and Judah, they're still standing at the time of Jeremiah. They haven't been completely destroyed. Jerusalem has not been flattened into a waste. And it's important to see this. Anytime we're reading a book in the Bible, we always want to keep it in its context. And part of that context, we want to think about how does the rest of the Bible use this passage? How does the rest of the Bible use this, this text that I'm reading? Because we'll start to see how the Bible fits together. We'll start to see the full revelation of who God is. And so what we see as we read uh, Micah 3, as we read Jeremiah chapter 26, is we see that when God proclaimed his judgment through Micah, when he was proclaiming this judgment, he didn't do so because God relishes judgment. He didn't do so because in the Old Testament, God was just a God of judgment. And he was always judging people like crazy. It just was his hobby. It's what he liked to do. No, God didn't relish judgment. He sent this word of judgment, not because he was eager to destroy his people, but because he was eager to lead his people to repentance in faith. He sent his word through Micah because he ultimately wanted to lead them to turn from their idolatry and injustice, to turn back to him so that he could relent from disaster and ultimately restore them. This was the heart of God for his people. This was the reason why he sent a prophet like Micah to proclaim his judgment against them. And this desire in the heart of God to lead his people into repentance and restoration this is the same desire that led God to send his own son into the world, to send this ultimate prophet into the world, to, to not just preach, but to bring about a restoration that Micah and Hezekiah and Jeremiah could only dream of. It's striking as we read chapter 3 that in verse 11 of, of chapter 3, Micah, he highlights heads, priests, and prophets as the unjust rulers of Israel. It's striking how he highlights these three specific types of rulers because when we read about Jesus in the New Testament, one thing that becomes clear is we discover that Jesus is himself 
our perfect head, our perfect priest, and our perfect prophet. And theologians, they refer to this idea, they call it the threefold office of Christ. And what this means is that Jesus is revealed to us in Scripture as our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And we get this from uh, the very title that we use for Jesus, from the word Christ. Jesus, or Christ is not just Jesus, it's not Jesus' last name. Christ is his title. It's a word that means Messiah, which is a word that means anointed one. As you read about the people of God in the Old Testament, there's only three uh, types of people who were ever anointed with oil as a symbol of their authority. And that was prophets, that was priests, and that was kings. That was kings. These are the people who were anointed, who were given authority over God's people. And then as we see throughout the Old Testament, even as Israel's rulers failed them again and again and again, a promise was growing in the Old Testament that a perfect ruler, that a perfect anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, was going to come who would be perfectly just, who would bring ultimate deliverance and restoration to his people. And then hundreds of years after Micah and Jeremiah, Jesus himself stood in a synagogue in Nazareth and declared that this promise of deliverance and restoration was being fulfilled in his coming. That the Christ, the Messiah, had arrived. And this fulfillment was recognized by the author of Hebrews 1, who declared that Jesus is both our ultimate prophet and the ultimate ruler who upholds the universe by the word of his power. But if you keep reading Hebrews 1, if you get to Hebrews 1, 3, you also see the author of Hebrews declare that Jesus, he's not just the ultimate prophet, he's not just the ultimate king, he's the ultimate priest who made purifications for sins, who made purification for sins, who sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, Hebrews 1 and other places in the Bible, they're showing us, they're revealing to us that Jesus is the ultimate prophet who reveals God to us. He's the ultimate uh, one who shows us that our sin and idolatry and injustice, that our abuse and misuse of our own authority, that all of that merits us the judgment of God. He's our ultimate prophet who reveals that truth to us of our own sin. But Jesus is also the ultimate king, the ultimate Hezekiah who's come to lead us into repentance and reform, who's come to bring us true restoration. And he accomplished this by going to the cross by going to the cross where he, as our perfect priest, he gave his own life as the ultimate sacrifice for sins, where he, bear, he bore in himself the just judgment that we deserve from God. And then he died and, and rose again on the third day and ascended and sat down at the right hand of his Father because his work is finished. His work is finished. And so if we look to Christ, if we trust in him, no matter how prideful or selfish or corrupt we are, if we turn from our idolatry and injustice, if we repent and cling to Christ in faith, then we can be restored. We can be made new. And Jesus, our perfect prophet, priest, and king, in Christ we can have our blind eyes open. We can be liberated from the oppression and bondage of our sin. In Christ, we can experience the jubilee of the Lord's favor. And if we know this, if we have tasted this perfect restoration that comes in Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, if we know this, then we have a whole new perspective, a whole new viewpoint, a whole new way of seeing uh, the earthly, earthly leaders and earthly corruption and earthly injustice. When we see injustices carried out by corrupt leaders, we can rightly grieve because of the pain that this injustice causes, but we can also grieve without despair, without acting like the sky is falling every four years, without acting like the world is coming to an end because what's happening in this nation or that nation, without uh, mourning in despair because of how our culture is changing because we know that there is a greater judge there is a greater ruler who will ultimately make things right, a perfect king. And when we are tempted to place our trust in ourselves or when we are tempted to place our ultimate trust in an earthly ruler, when the political pressures or social changes around us, when they preach to us a message that we need to get the right person in office or that we need to place our, faith, our fate in the right institution or the right piece of technology, 
when we're, we're tempted to do that because of Christ, we can turn away from all these temptations like a parent who refuses to let their screaming toddler run the house because we have a greater ruler. We have a greater hope. We have a perfect prophet, priest, and king. We need no other hope. We need no other source of restoration, of deliverance. In Christ, the injustice of our earthly rulers, the injustice in our own hearts, meets the justice and restoration of our heavenly ruler. And it's no contest. It's no contest. We don't have to place our trust in earthly princes, even when they promise us the world, even when they tell us that they are the one thing standing between us and destruction. Because we know that we have a greater king who is risen and who is reigning, who died and rose again to bring a restoration that starts right now and will stretch into eternity, who upholds the universe with the word of his power. And so we sing at Christmas these joyful words. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. The wonders of his love. The wonders and wonders and wonders of his love. Please pray with me. Faithful Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the chance we have to read it. You've given us this authority. You've given us this revelation that we can read and make sense of. Even as we come to challenging passages like Micah 3, Lord, you help us to, to, to see what they have to teach us, what these words show us about our own sin, our own idolatry, our own hearts. Lord, so make that truth come home to us. Help us to see clearly our own sin, but then show us even more clearly our Savior, our perfect prophet, priest, and king who came to bring us restoration, who came to bring true justice, who came to make things right and also to make us right with you. Let that be our ultimate hope. Let us place our ultimate hope in him, not in ourselves, not in earthly rulers or institutions who are so easily corrupted. Help us cling to this hope to proclaim this Christmas the joy that this world can know because of all you are for us and all you have done for us in your Son, in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Please stand, and we'll sing a final song together. from here with this word of benediction. May the God of hope fill you 
with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen. Go in peace.